Our message today comes to us from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, once again, as we prepare to walk through this so, um, so important passage of Scripture, talking about the, the covenant that you made with your servant David. And Lord, as we continue to celebrate Advent this month, the, the birth of our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago. Lord, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would fill this place to overflowing with the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. <clears throat> we pray that you would enable us to see the glory of your Son so that we would be driven to our knees in worship and in awe, so that we would be driven to the cross of Christ for mercy and forgiveness. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so as we uh, continue celebrating Advent and as we move closer and closer uh, to that day in which we celebrate uh, the birth of Christ, and of course, we don't know exactly what day Christ was born. That remains a mystery uh, in church history, but December 25th historically has been the day in which we celebrate the birth of Christ, and as we move closer and closer to that day, a third uh, very important passage for us to look at is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here in this text, as I've already mentioned in the prayer, 
is where God makes a covenant with David. And uh, we've talked about that before. A covenant is a solemn binding agreement between two or more persons uh, in the Old Testament. It was sort of the early version of a contract, if you will, but it was certainly more significant than a contract because um, life and death hung in the balance when you entered into a covenant with someone else. So here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes just such a covenant with David, and it is an unconditional covenant that he makes with David, much like the Abrahamic covenant. Because we see in this covenant, David is not required to do anything. This is not, David, you do your part and I'll do mine. This is not a conditional covenant. God simply makes covenantal promises and commitments to David. Let me give you the setting because I do think it's helpful, especially as we move through the Old Testament, as we move through redemptive history getting closer and closer uh, to the day in which Christ is born as, as we get closer and closer to the, uh, the light becoming brighter and brighter when it finally comes into the world, I think it's important to know where do we fall on the timeline as we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. So this has been about 500 years after the covenant that God makes with Israel at Mount Sinai. 500 years have passed since God made that covenant with them. This has been about 1,000 years since the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and the covenant that he makes with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Of course, those two chapters are separated by about 10 years. But it's been 1,000 years since God has made that promise to Abraham that he would be a great nation, and that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. A thousand years later, still, all the families of the earth have not been blessed. And this has been about 3,000 years since the promise that was made to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 3,000 years since... Adam and Eve brought sin into the world and he drove them out of the garden and he made coverings for them from animal skins and then made a promise to them that someday he would send a deliverer, a redeemer to fix what Adam and Eve had ruined. 3,000 years have gone by since that day and still the people of God await. And so at this point, by the time we get to Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has been chosen by God to replace King Saul as the king of Israel. I'm sure you remember that story back in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The prophet Samuel anoints the young shepherd boy David to be the king who would replace King Saul because of his disobedience to God. David is officially anointed as the king of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and then he captures Jerusalem from the Jebusites, and then he has a palace built for himself in 
Jerusalem, which becomes the capital of Israel, the city of the kings. And then he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And he sets up the tabernacle with all of the temple furnishings. Because remember, at this point, there's still no temple has been built out of stone. The Ark of the Covenant and the temple furnishings and all of the sacrifices are still being performed inside the tabernacle, which is essentially a large tent held up with poles and ropes. You have the outer courtyard, the holy place, and then the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is sitting. So this is the setting that brings us to chapter 7. And so let's take a look for a few minutes at the context of chapter 7, again, just to understand um, where this is going and how we get to verses 8 and following. But in verses 1 through 3, in the opening verses, David, we see, is feeling a bit guilty, but he's also feeling very appreciative for all that God has done for him, for all that God has done for the nation, and thus he desires to do something for God in order to demonstrate his gratitude for God and his love for God. We see in verse 1, the text says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, so that's what David is looking at. He lives in a palace built of cedar. It's a nice place. He's finally comfortable. He's He's tired of running around in the wilderness and living in caves. He now has a permanent address. And God has given him rest from all his enemies. And so the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is is with you. So it's a worthy endeavor, right? David sees his own house and he thinks, gosh, something doesn't seem right because God is truly the king of Israel. It is God who has delivered us from our enemies. It is God who has brought us into the promised land. And yet here I live comfortably and yet the Ark of the Covenant And this is why it was a big deal to David. David understood, along with every other Israelite, that the Ark of the Covenant is the very throne of God. God is their king. God speaks to the people from above the Ark, above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim. The tabernacle is the temple of God. It is his dwelling place. And David thinks to himself, it just doesn't seem right that my dwelling place is far better than the dwelling place of God. You know, there's an interesting lesson just to be learned there from David's behavior. Is that the only proper response to God's deliverance and for the blessings that God brings into our lives is to then have a desire to turn and give God our very best in terms of our behavior, in terms of our thoughts, in terms of our possessions, in terms of our time and energy. That's what David desires. 
David desires to give God his very best. And so, in response, God says four things to David through the prophet Nathan. God, in this chapter, God is not directly speaking to David. God speaks to Nathan and says, you need to go back and give David a message from me. And he says four things to him. And the first thing that he says is in verses 5 to 7. So we see in verse 4, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So now this is God speaking. This is what you're going to tell King David. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? In other words, God says to David, Look, David, I've been living in a tent for 500 years. That's been my abode, and I have never complained about it, and I have never asked for anything more. God did command the Israelites to build the tabernacle in Exodus, and they do that in obedience. But since the completion of the tabernacle, God has never asked for anything more. Interesting how God himself is a great example to us of contentment. The creator of the universe says, David, I've never asked for more than what I asked for in the first place. God makes clear to David that if he wanted anything or if God needed anything, he certainly did not need it from David. God is reminding David that he is, he alone is the self-existent one. He is the creator and the sustainer of all that exists, and God needs nothing outside of himself. In particular, God does not need people. God does not need David. God does not need you and I. God did not create all that exists, and God did not create humanity because he was lonely or he was in need of affection or love or companionship. For all of eternity, God was completely content within the harmonious and beautiful fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the end, God creates because he desires to share his goodness with something or someone outside of himself. So he creates Adam and Eve. But God needs nothing outside of himself. The Bible will tell us this in various places. God himself will say this in a most powerful and graphic way. In Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, Scripture says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? What could you possibly build that could truly contain God? 
All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Everything that exists comes from me. Paul will say that in his famous speech on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. In part, Paul says this in verses 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It is God who is the giver of all things. We are the receivers of all things that come from God. The second thing that God says to David is that it's David who needs God, not the other way around. He says that in verses 8 and 9, essentially pointing out in those two verses three realities that he wants David to grasp. First of all, in verse 8, he says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. In other words, it is God who sovereignly chose David. David did not choose God. You see that when David was anointed by the prophet Samuel. David wasn't looking for God. He wasn't looking to be the greatest king of Israel. He was out shepherding sheep, minding his own business, much like Moses, right? Moses wasn't looking to be the greatest of God's prophets. Moses was in Midian, shepherding sheep, minding his own business, much like Abraham. Abraham was a pagan living in Ur of the Chaldeans, minding his own business, worshiping pagan gods. Throughout all of history, it is not we who choose God. It is God who chooses us, lest we think that God owes us something. You see, because that's the idea behind that kind of thinking. If we chose God, then God should appreciate us because we chose him. He should value us a little more highly, be thankful for the fact that we chose to follow God. But God reminds David, it was I who chose you. It was I who brought you from pasturing the sheep. It was I who made you the prince over my people. David, you owe everything to me, and I owe nothing to you. That's true today, beloved. We are followers of Christ. If our eyes have been opened to the glory of Christ, in accordance with Ephesians chapter 2, if our dead, lifeless souls were raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, we contributed nothing to that. It is we who owe God everything, and God owes us nothing. The second thing he says to him is in verse 9, and I have been with you wherever you 
went. God is the one who went with David wherever David was. You know, so often we like to think that we're doing God a favor by praying to him, by worshiping him, by following him, by sticking with him, when the reality is it is God who sticks with us. It is God who is faithful to us when we are faithless. And that's what God is reminding David of. I'm the one who went with you, David. I am the one who has been faithful to you, David. I am the one who has stuck with you, David, not the other way around. And we see that in the life of David, where he was faithless on numerous occasions. And yet God remains ever faithful to him. Thirdly, he says in the second half of verse 9, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. God is the one who delivered David. God wants David to know that David is the one who needs God. God is not the one in need of David. He is making it painfully clear to David, David, I need nothing from you. There is nothing you can offer that I need but you desperately need me. The third thing that God does is make promises to David to be realized in his lifetime. We see that in verses 9 to 11, so still just giving us the, uh, the context of this. But in verse 9, the middle of verse 9, he goes on to say, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your Enemies. So these are promises to be realized in David's lifetime. So the first thing God does is he sets David straight, right? David, I don't need you, but you need me. Secondly, David, I am going to make promises to you that you will see come to pass in your lifetime. Namely, that God would make David a great name, and certainly that promise has been fulfilled. David still considered to be the greatest leader in the history of Israel. King David, who has not heard the name of King David? The star that is on the Israeli flag is called the Star of David. Israel will dwell secure in the land, and that certainly becomes true by the end of David's life. King Solomon, his son, reigns over a time of peace and prosperity. And thirdly, he says to him, you will have rest from all your enemies. And David certainly sees that. By the end of his life, he dies in peace. And Solomon continues to reign over a nation that lives in peace. The fourth thing, and the most significant thing that God says to David, which has to do with Advent, is that he makes promises to be realized after David's death. Look at verses 11 to 16. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. What an interesting statement. I'm going to build you a house, David. You're not going to build me one. I'm going to build a house for you. When is this going to happen? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so after his death, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He, David, that son, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God makes four tremendously important promises to David in these verses that will be fulfilled after his death. Number one, he will have a son. Number two, God will be eternally faithful to that son. He will never abandon him. Number three, that son will have a kingdom. And number four, that kingdom and his throne will last forever. But who is this son? Who is God referring to? Could not have been Solomon because this son will come after David's death. Could not be referring to Solomon. But it also could not be referring to any of the kings of Israel or any of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah because their kingdom and their throne does not last forever. Their kingdom and their throne does not last forever. God does remove his steadfast love from them, just as he took it from Saul at some point. If you're familiar with Old Testament history, you know that the kingdom is divided after Solomon. 200 years later, the northern kingdom is destroyed, and 200 years after that, the southern kingdom is destroyed. God gets to a point where he says, I have had enough with their idolatry, with their rebellion. And yet, God has made an unconditional promise to Adam and Eve. He's made an unconditional promise to them in Genesis 3.15 that he will someday send a redeemer. And that promise is reaffirmed through the unconditional covenant made with Abraham. Through you, the promise of Genesis 3.15 will come to fruition. And through you, Abraham, you will be a blessing to all nations. 
But again, the question is, who is God speaking of? There can be a little confusion when you look at verse 14 where it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Don't take that word when to mean that it will happen. This is more of an if clause. But you have to understand that this passage would have been understood in at least two ways. First of all, on a human level, David likely was thinking of some physical son. All of the prophets after Nathan, all of the kings after Nathan were thinking of some human son. And of course, they all knew that no human is sinless. The Hebrew can be translated as when or if, When makes sense in their mind, but when we understand who this text is really speaking of, it's not a when, but an if, and of course, that if never happens with Christ, because this passage is referring to Christ. God essentially says to David, look, David, you're going to have a son from your own body whose throne and kingdom will last forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. I will never, ever forsake him no matter what. And Matthew makes clear that this is referring to Christ. In fact, Matthew starts his book that way. The very first sentence, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew begins with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Remember that Matthew was a Jew, and the primary audience of Matthew's gospel was the Jewish audience. He was writing to his fellow Jews. And Matthew begins his gospel with those words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. I guarantee you every Jew who read that first sentence would have stopped right there and said, holy smokes. Is he really saying what I think he's saying? Is he really going to go in this book where I think he's going to go? And the answer is yes. Because Matthew refers to the kingdom as having come in Christ no less than 54 times in his gospel far more than any of the other gospel writers. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. And he refers to Christ as the son of David far more than any other gospel writer. That phrase, son of David, with reference to Christ, is found more in the gospel of Matthew than in any of the other books. Matthew wants his Jewish audience to understand one significant point. The Messiah has come. Christ is the long-awaited son of David. The promise is given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 come to fulfillment in the birth of Christ. 
the kingdom is here. He says that quite clearly when he records the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, for example. Here you're probably familiar with the story. Jesus has been casting out demons out of people who are demon-possessed, and he's accused of the Pharisees, or by the Pharisees, of casting out demons by the, the power of Satan, the power of Beelzebub. You're working for the devil. That's why you're able to do this, <clears throat> which is really a ridiculous thing to say because if Satan is going around and capturing people and possessing people, why would he, why would he undo what he has done in order to prove? What's the point of proving falsely that the Messiah has come when the devil is winning the day? The entire world lives in darkness. The devil would cast demons out. Makes no sense. And Jesus says that in Luke chapter 17, for example. In part, he responds by saying this in verses, uh, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, verses 25 to 26. He says this, knowing their thoughts, so the Pharisees are thinking this, that he's casting out demons by the power of the devil. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. Why would Satan be divided against himself? Verse 26, and if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Ouch. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the power of the Holy Spirit of God that I cast out demons, which we know that's exactly what he was doing, casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, listen to this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is not far off into the future. It is not a future event. The kingdom has come. See, the problem is, though, then and even now, we tend to think of kingdoms in earthly terms. When we think of a kingdom, we think, well, okay, if there's a kingdom, then, you know, there ought to be a castle, right, with like a throne room and a moat around it and maybe an army with horses and, and, and there's got to be a nation, right? There's got to be some borders. I mean, if, there, if there's a kingdom, right, we all know what a kingdom looks like. I don't see the kingdom. Where is it? Well, maybe Jesus brought the kingdom and then he took it back with him. But notice what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. So they're asking him, all right, so if you're the Messiah, if you're the son of David, so when is the kingdom going to arrive? Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said this, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. It's not observable. 
It's not what you think. The kingdom of God is not coming in waves that can be observed, nor will they say, look, there it is. See, there's the kingdom. It's been established. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's here is what Jesus is saying. The kingdom has arrived. Don't look for the kingdom in a way that we look for kingdoms. It comes in a way that can't be observed. Because the kingdom of God is the authority, the domain, and the realm of God's sovereignty. That is God's kingdom, which did, in fact, come and has been advancing around the world for the last 2,000 years. This is because with the coming of the king comes the kingdom. A king without a kingdom is not a king. A king without an army is not a king. If the kingdom has come, the kingdom has come because the king has come. But here's something that you might find interesting and you may have noticed is that I keep referring to the promises made to David as a covenant. You may have noticed that, well, the word covenant doesn't actually appear in that text, though, so why do you keep calling it a covenant? Well, just for your reference, you may want to write these down. It is because David himself and later writers in the Old Testament refer to it as a covenant. You see that in 2 Samuel 23, 5. Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, and Jeremiah 33, verses 20 and 21. Old Testament writers understood that God made a covenant with David. But in the end, what is the point of all of this? And what does all of this have to do with Advent in particular? Simply this, in the garden prior to the fall, prior to the fall, Adam and Eve represented all of humanity right? Because they were all of humanity. All of mankind existed in two people, Adam and Eve. They represented all of humanity who lived in a perfect, harmonious relationship with their king. Because God is the king. God was their loving king, and they were his devoted subjects. You see, it's the one title that God has always held. And too often we too easily forget that, particularly as modern-day evangelicals. You see, every other title or many of the other titles that God holds, that Christ holds, are only in light of creation and redemption. Christ is our Redeemer because He redeems. He is our brother because he saves us and brings us into a relationship with him. God is our father because we are adopted as his children. God is the creator because he created something. He's not the creator before he creates anything. But God has always been king. Christ has always been king because Christ, the Son of God, God the Father, God himself has always been in complete sovereign control of everything. 
He is the king who steps down from his throne and becomes human. God was their king, and they were his loyal and obedient subjects. Yet sin changed all of that. Sin shattered the relationship between God and humanity. So God makes a promise to humanity through them to someday send a redeemer to fix what Adam and Eve had ruined. And so he makes a covenant with Abraham to ensure that there would be a people through whom the promise would come. And then he makes a covenant with the nation of Israel in order to preserve the promise that was given to Abraham. And now God makes a covenant with David, ensuring that when the Messiah comes, the kingly relationship between God and his people will be restored. The harmonious relationship between God and his people, which was lost in the fall, is restored in the birth of Christ, our King. For those who place faith in Christ, listen to the words of Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us Referring to God. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. For those who place faith in Christ, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's another great proof text that the kingdom is here. Because in salvation, in regeneration, one of the things that happens at that moment is that we are transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. If we are in the kingdom now, then the kingdom must be here. The kingdom must be present. And we are in that kingdom. Scripture goes on to say, he, referring to Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Don't miss that. We're talking about Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What is the Apostle Paul's point? The king who was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago is the very same king of creation. He is the very same king of all that exists who made that promise to Adam and Eve way back in Genesis chapter 3. The king himself, the king of creation, steps out of the glory of heaven, takes on human form, and is born as an infant in order to restore the kingdom and to restore a people back into the kingdom 
and to restore that wonderful, harmonious relationship between the king and his loyal subjects. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace and love and mercy. We thank you that you are our king and that you, the king, stepped out of heaven in the second person of the Trinity, your son, Jesus Christ. That he was born in Bethlehem. He lived a perfect life in obedience to the law for us, paid the penalty on the cross to die for our sins. We praise you and we worship you, King Jesus, for restoring the kingdom, for delivering us out of the domain of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of God. We thank you and we praise you that you are our king. We pray that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to worship you as our king. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.